Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that today we're gonna really enjoy the guests that we have on the show. I mean, we're gonna learn how he actually learned the VC game in literally three months. That's what he had to make it happen. And I think that what he's built is remarkable. So I don't wanna make anyone wait longer. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Iyad Tarasi. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. So you were born in Libya. And, yes. uh, you know, obviously, you know, you moved quite a bit there, given some of the circumstances. So tell us about your life growing up. Sure. My dad was an expat. He's a CPA. He worked as a controller for a uh, European car dealership out in North Africa. And we were expats in Libya. And then when I was 12, we had to move back to the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is a essentially a refugee camp area. My mother is a refugee as well. And we were there for about five years, just dealing with that environment. When I was 16, my brother and I packed our bags and got on a plane and came to the U.S. and with $500 and started working towards uh, an engineering degree. Uh, finished an engineering degree and did my master's, and uh, it's been just wonderful so far. And obviously, you know, there's times in life that you're dealt with certain cards that you know, it's a, they really shape you, you know, and shape your personality and, and how you view life as well. So how would you say that, that this experience of being in a refugee camp, you know, like has, has shaped, you know, who Iyat is today? Um, I think a lot of people underestimate what is inside them and what they can do. Um, the, the harder the experience you've had growing up or overcoming the odds or learning a new culture in weeks or you know, picking up a job in two weeks of landing in a new country. The more of that you do, the more you trust that you can do just about anything. Um, and so anytime we run into hard times here, you know, a, the startup business is, is notoriously high highs and low lows. And so when you get the low lows, you, I always step back and say, wait a minute, this is not quite as low as I've seen before. And a high will always come after the low. So persevere. And uh, hang in there. <laughs> and the more of that you do, the better you feel. In the end of the day, the more of this adversity you live through, the more you can count it as wins and, and you can build on it. 
Absolutely. And obviously, uh, in the refugee camp, you were there for about five years, and you were about 16 or so. So how did the opportunity of coming you know, here to, to the U.S., which is the, the American dream, the land of opportunity, is something that everyone you know, around the world would love to, to experience or to have the access to. So how did this opportunity fall on your lap? Well, you had to study hard for it. I, uh, for about two years to make sure you have enough grades up. I mean, I think most people don't realize this, but if you're from a different country, you want to come here, not only you have to be good at your studies, but you have to be in the best of the best, um, unless you had abundance of money, you had to be in the best of the best in order to get qualified. Um, for two years, I'd set the alarm at 4 a.m. Um, to study all day. Um, I came in uh, number three in the 10,000 graduating class in the Gaza Strip for the year I graduated high school. Wow. Wow. So obviously this opportunity comes knocking, and definitely you were very interested in, in everything related to engineering. So, so why, why, how do you develop that love for it? Engineering? My grandfather was an engineer. He was, um, he was, one, he was one of the first, if not the first, engineer in Mandate Palestine at the time. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time with him sitting at his drawing table, um, going through his designs and his engineering programs. Um, so I was quite proud of being an engineer. And this led you into the first experience in a startup. So how was that? <laughs> startup. So my first job after college, uh, I worked for a very small startup, 20 people. It was a direct competitor of Oracle at the time. The relationship well, database programs were just beginning, and Oracle was a tiny company. And what I learned there is that you have to be everything in a startup. I had my own piece of the code that I was managing in C++. I was responsible for all tech support. I was uh, responsible for marketing. That included all the trade shows. Um, and I had to pack the boxes and take them with me uh, to these trade shows. I also was responsible for building all the accounting systems and a couple of other things. So you learn pretty quickly, A, you don't make a lot of money, and B, you, you have to wear multiple hats. So it seems that obviously this, this had an effect in you because here you are again in the world of startups. So I guess what got you so hooked about this experience? Uh, you learn at a million miles an hour. Um, so if you like learning, which I do, and I fundamentally believe that startups are learning machines, right? We get paid to learn. If all we do is replicate what other companies do, you never win. You don't have resources and scale. And the best people aren't always in a startup in terms of background and experience and connections. So you have to win by learning. And so it's the opportunity to learn. So as I've gone through my career, I have vacillated between startups and big companies. After that startup, I went to work for MCI, which was you know, on a, in a growth phase. And my first job was um, in a job that was all data entry. But within the first couple of months, I automated the whole department. Uh, some of my colleagues were not happy with me, but it was sort of certainly was the beginnings of the merging between computer science and engineering and data entry. And that got me started in there. And then after that, I did that for a while. And then it became a big company. So I left 
I went to another startup, which was Nextel, was a really tiny wireless company at the time, 100,000 subscribers. The phones were so heavy, you needed to buy an accessory bag to put your cell phone in it. The battery was four times the size of the phone. Um, and then um, we built that from scratch when it was 25 million people. We sold the company to Sprint, which was another massive company. And I stayed there for a while. For there, I built, I wanted to see the phase of uh, not just growth, but also the phase of decline of a company, decline in the sense of you're squeezing efficiency out of a business. I did that for quite some time. I did a lot of the strategy. I was responsible for all the R&D. So that was a really big job of sort of the thousand people, three, four billion a year in capital, um, all of the, and there I learned sort of evangelizing. I've learned a lot of things, but you know, one of the things I've done when I was there that was quite crucial is that I knew I wanted to be in a startup again. And this time I wanted to be my startup. And so what I did, I sat on a board of a company uh, with a, a friend CEO and I sat there, helped him for about three, four years. And the whole idea behind it was to learn everything about a startup you can um, without actually running it. On a board, you don't quite learn everything, but you learn sort of the what matters. So I did that for a while. And then when it got to a point where, you know, I was just done everything I can do at Sprint, I left and I joined this really, really tiny startup called Federated Wireless, two people at the time. Uh, the founders are scientists who are very accomplished uh, but they really didn't want to be the operators. So it was the, would you like to take this off our hands? We have a lot of IP developed and we have good ideas and we've created this new model. Would you like to do something about it? And that was intensely appealing for me because I've been trying to solve the in-building wireless problem for about 15 years. And it was very, very hard to do it as a carrier because... You know, just the problem is way too distributed. So this was an opportunity to solve that problem. And ultimately, to do something was more important to me. I really, really wanted to create a model where everybody can be an operator. Everybody can take control of their wireless coverage or their wireless experience, their broadband experience. And so I was very, very intrigued by the model. And I went and took the job. Got it. And we're going to be talking about that in detail. Yeah, I think that you mentioned a couple of things here that are very interesting. I mean, the first one is you were for so long. I mean, you were in in Sprint. You were also in in which well, obviously what is Sprint now? You know, with after the 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 uh, the type of transaction that happened there with with T-Mobile. But then before that, you were in Nextel. So I mean, we're talking about fifteen to sixteen years that you were really an employee. And obviously, yeah. one gets very comfortable with receiving that paycheck with a nine to five. So why did you come to the conclusion that it was the right time for you now to really take that leap of faith and, and go at it with, with another startup? Yeah, because um, as, as long as you're an employee, you have plenty of run room un until you reach the point where, you know, you can no longer get your ideas done inside the walls, so to speak, right? Right. Um, and I had reached that point. I was getting just... I could tell, I could see myself getting quite frustrated with um, not being able to move fast enough, make enough change happen, try new ideas. And so at the beginning, I thought, well, maybe I just need to go to a small company. As a matter of fact, I talked to a couple of small companies. And then 
or a different job or but then you reach a point where you say look um you have to do it you have to do it yourself there's no other way but doing it yourself um so i talked to my wife and a couple of my friends i say i'm just gonna do it and if it works it'd be great and if it doesn't i'll try again so what did that day feel like when you gave your notice and and you were going to be dealing with a very uncertain future. Uh, phenomenal. It was great. As a matter of fact, whenever somebody calls me about leaving a big company, I send them a very elaborate congratulation note at this point because they typically don't know at that point in time when they actually begin to take control of their own future. What a liberating model that is. You know, With all of the craziness and all the uncertainty, the amount of satisfaction I get out of my job every day. In the worst day today from a job satisfaction is better than some of the, the tough parts of, of being an employee look like. So this is a wonderful environment. So obviously here you are. You obviously give your notice. You take that leap of faith. You join these uh, two individuals as a, as a co-founder. And what happens, what happens next? We start building. We start creating a lot of opportunities. We start meeting with people. Um, two things happened that surprised me. Uh, the first piece of it is, um, you know, the world wasn't as welcoming of change, right? And that is actually quite obvious now in retrospect, but wasn't at the time. Uh, you start meeting with, you know, you have a big ecosystem. You have a lot of uh, industry connections. You call them and say, hey, I've got this great idea. It will help you. Um, ultimately, you you begin to quickly run into the people are actually afraid of change in the end of the day. And you have to sort of make change friendly. Um, and the way you make change friendly is holding hands and building relationships and be slow and methodical. So the first thing I learned is that, you know, the amount of contention that comes from change and disruption. And so you'd have to, uh, you know, laugh at it, literally laugh at it is what I, what, what I did a few times. I was in one meeting with a really, really big chipset makers, and I was called, you know, come fly to the West Coast so we can talk to you. Sat in this big conference room. This is about six months into it. I showed them the potential benefit to them of having this new model. And they, they looked at it and said, yeah, I think this is great, but who are you guys? You'll never really be able to make it happen. Um, and then, we, you know, right in the middle of the meeting, one of the executives were quite high up got on the phone and started yelling at the top of their lungs and said, you guys are idiots. Who do you think you are? You shouldn't put ideas out there unless you, you vet them by big companies like us. And then right there, I started laughing. I mean, I just couldn't do anything but laugh because getting on the plane back that day, I felt that, okay, we have something really valuable here. <laughs> if it wasn't, they wouldn't be yelling at us. So, but that's that's interesting because typically people will get discouraged. So, so what happened there for you? What was there present for you that, you know, made you you know take this more as an encouragement to continue pushing hard? Because I sort of said that you know your immediate reaction is always emotional, and so I've learned, you know, to let the emotions marinate, because when they're done marinating after a few hours, you um you get the different result, right? And so that day after the meeting, I went for a long run. I'm an avid runner. I've ran about 15 marathons um, in, my, in my life. I ran, wow. um, and then I let it marinate, and I came back, and I said, 
you know, if we truly were, you know, worthless, nobody would yell at us. So this is good. Yeah. Let me go back and find out what is it about what we did that I yelled at? This is what we're going to double down on right now. And then okay. about a, couple, a year and a half later, we were in that same company's offices um, in a very different model with full partnership. And that company ended up being our best partner and promoter for quite some time. And there are quite good friends. Um, it's just that you had to sort of prove yourself along the way. So that's sort of the first piece that I learned. The second piece I learned is that you know, whatever you think, there are no rules in startups, which is a really nice thing, means, you know, in a big company, you expect some structure around finance or process or any of that in startups, you really have to make it up every day. So the, you know, about a year into it, we I had come in into a model where there was a big umbrella VC firm that was all about um, intellectual property commercialization. They were running about 25, 26 companies, and they provided all of what you hear about sort of VC support services will help you fundraise, will help you with your business plan, will help you with your target market, will help you with your commercialization, all of that. But in reality, you know, under, you know, that company went through a change in business model that resulted in something like 20 of the 26 companies being either uh, shut down or, or spun off. Or, and so there was a time where you reached a point where, okay, the services you're counting on from the VC firm aren't materializing. What do you do? And we are about three months short of what we needed to do from a fundraising. And so I uh, still remember putting um, a presentation together, um, going up to Boston, asking for a meeting on Sunday. And I presented basically to say, whatever model we think we're doing right now is not working. You have to let me go fundraise in a completely different way. Um, and you need to let me do it. And so, you know, ultimately, there was a, uh, you know, a few really loud words and, you know, a lot of emotions exchanged. And after that, I got back on the plane and I started fundraising in a different way. And I ended up convincing um, the engineering team, who are good friends now at Charter, to help us create a new model that would work really well for them. Um, and and give us a strategic investment, and then I went and also convinced the the business team at at one of the largest tower companies as well, American because Tower, to give us seed funding as well. And so with the with the two strategic investments, I was able to go back and round up the rest of the financial round and really get the company started in a completely different fundraising model than when we started. So. Um, the people at the VC firms are good friends and supporters now after they've gone through the church curve. Um, um, I think that we have a very strong board now, very strong investment team. Um, and then I've learned that every time you go through a fundraising, it's like opening a box to look what's inside it. And you have to sort of persevere and find the right plan and, and make the most of it. Um, but ultimately, if you're not there to say, I'm here. I'm going to take care of it, period. Nothing will ever happen. You have to be the one to carry the flag, no matter what the model is. Absolutely. So what ended up being the business model of Federated Wireless so that the people listening you know, get it? So the business model for us is that there, uh, airwaves is what are needed to carry wireless signals. There's not enough airwaves. 70% of airwaves in the U.S. are used by the federal government, primarily the DOD. And our model is to compute out 
the one, the very, very small usage that the DoD does in these airwaves in using algorithms and cloud compute and sensors in order for us to make the other 99% of their spectrum available to the commercial sector in a software as a service model. So we're sort of, we're sort of Airbnb for airwaves. Uh, the owner of the building is the DoD. The tenants can be anybody and they get it at almost uh, somewhere between 90 and 95% cheaper than traditional wireless models. And so we have over 50 customers now, big customers. We have about 100 different customers in various um, uh, phases of deployment and trials. And it took us five years to build the ecosystem, meaning get this model inside iPhones and uh, Samsung devices and iPads and laptops, uh, get it into the regulatory process, convince the DoD to let us operate, convince the FCC to let us operate. And we started commercialization back in January. We are a little more than 50% of this market. Our one and only real competitor is Google, and we're better than them, which is something I'm quite proud of. That's and amazing. we're only 80 people. <laughs> That's amazing. And and just saying, you know, just to 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 go back to to the conversation, just to expand on what you were saying. So it seems that you know, here you were, you know, when you were doing that round of financing in a place where you needed to really learn everything about the fundraising and the venture, the venture capital world in, in literally three months. So what did you learn about the venture capital game? Um, what I learned is that ultimately it's a people business and it's not a finance business as I expected. I thought, I thought the whole uh, venture capital business is really driven by you know, the, the power of the spreadsheet and the power of the model. But really, it's built on the personalities, uh, the strength of convention, conviction, the, the track record of execution, the ability to explain the problem statement. I've learned a couple of things which actually are serving us quite well now. Number one, make sure you attack the largest market possible. That's something that you hear over and over in books and so on. But I really learned it real time. You couldn't really go after a narrow segment of the market because the risk is too high. And so you had to operate. We now operate in like six segments at the same time. Everything from enterprise to carrier to cable to wireline to uh, infrastructure companies to IoT. We have to operate in all places because you need the biggest market possible. The second thing I learned is that setting the business model is more important than the technology, than anything else. Our business model is a recurring uh, revenue per unit of deployment, cell sites or access point. And uh, you, we have these contracts with multiple people. The more they deploy, the more we're able to collect fees. So even though you're investing a lot heavier upfront in that model, but just because you're setting it up so that over time you can be profitable and you have the right margins, you know that was more important than the technology itself. These are really the two learnings is that, you know, VC business is a people business. Business model is more important than technology and also attack the biggest market possible. I've also learned that you have to continue to expand your network. Your network is everything. You have to continue to expand your network every day or otherwise you just won't be able to keep up because the friends you make today are the people that you need to get their advice and vice versa. They need your help. You have to jump in and help them. This is, again, intensely people business, the startup business. So in terms of um, money raised, I mean, how much capital have you guys raised to date? 
140 million. Got it. I mean, that's a lot of zeros. I'm getting dizzy just from thinking about that. <laughs> so, so I guess uh, in terms of, you know, like obviously the, the execution here and, and going about this, I mean, how, how do you, you, you were mentioning that you're competing with people like Google. So I guess that, you know, to be able to operate at, at, at this capacity, at this speed, at this effectiveness, I'm sure that you've rallied up, you know, the culture. The culture yes. has to do a big thing with it. So, so how do you think about culture and, and how, does, how do these 80 people that you have right now pushing, you know, be able to deliver such remarkable results against so, such big companies? Um, culture is everything, right? Do you hear that? But it's absolutely true. Our culture, uh, so the, the people we hire, um, you know, I look for three traits in the end of the day. Number one, that they're learning machines because it's all about, you know, startups compete by learning fast. And we also were able to build distribution very, very quickly um, because usually as a startup, you're always suffering on distribution versus uh, versus you have a lot of good ideas. So we, I really, really focused on building distribution as fast as possible. Fifty percent of my time was building, you know, path to market and distribution from day one, um, including all the brand marketing and all of the the ways I needed to just sort of get my message out as many places. Uh, but ultimately, we hired people. Number one, learning machines. Number two, uh, really, really good at connecting with people. Um, and number three, they're really able to understand a systems thinking because a startup has to take about 10 ideas and turn them into one. So you have to be able to understand the 10 to turn it into one. I hired people from different backgrounds, some people from wireless, some people from carrier, some people from Wi-Fi, some people from equipment, from chipsets. I hired people in different parts of the country, different backgrounds. Um, and then I spend most of my time integrating them so we can actually accelerate the the mishmash of ideas and and get things done and uh everybody has a voice so we're 100 percent transparent with about everything we do including you know before i do a board meeting i go tell my entire team what agenda i'm taking to the board when the board meeting is done i go tell everybody in the company what we just learned um, and what we're doing and then you also have to um, you know, get rid of org charts. We really, I've, I have never seen an org chart because every person in the company is capable of leading the rest of us and you need to empower them. And uh, I spend a lot of time on things like offsites and management coaching and 360s and employee surveys and coaching sessions because the minute you see politics creeping up or level authority or process authority, you have to immediately weed it out. And um, so that's how we execute. We execute every one of us is a, is a boss. Um, and we give people a lot of room to do what they want. And we support them. Um, also, you have to really, you know, dispense of the idea of there are mistakes. I don't really believe there are mistakes. There are just, there are learning points that we have to track and see what these learning points are. So as a leader, you have to be very, very disciplined not to react when something doesn't go right, you have to basically step back and and basically go back and encourage the team and say, okay, what have you learned from it? And what do we do about it? And how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? That requires enormous discipline in leadership because most people's reaction is, this person screwed up, what do we do about them? That's actually never true. 90% of the time, it's either the circumstances or the support or the communication or the timing or all of that. So 
there's a series of things we spend on. I spend I spend a lot of time on culture. So let's let's think about today. Yet you know you you go to sleep and you wake up in a world, in a world five years later, in a mm. world where the vision of federated wireless is fully realized. Sure. What does that world look like? What that world looks like is that you can, with one or two clicks of a button on an e-commerce marketplace, you can order uh, your wireless network of choice for your location of choice. It could be a warehouse and you do a double clicks and one click or two, and that's all you need to do with very simple pricing and very and low friction interaction. You can get a, uh, an automation network for your warehouse, or you can get a security system or camera deployed around your building, office building, or any other application or a point of sale automation for your store. So a way for us to really get to a point where anybody can deploy their own wireless network anywhere they want with a click of a button. Very cool. Very cool. So so there is one question here that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time yet, and yeah. you know maybe you had that chance of speaking to your younger self, maybe that yet that I was thinking about taking that leap of faith and joining these these two folks, you know, to really go at it, you know, and 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 become an entrepreneur. What would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self, given what you know now, and why before launching a business? Yeah, I would have started earlier. I would have started my startup earlier. Uh, no question. Um, I always was sort of trying to be deliberate and thoughtful about all the things I need to learn and observing and all of that. You know, you should do some of that, but, you know, believe in yourself. I should have started 10 years earlier. I would have had 10 more years of making my own vision happen. That's my only real advice to my younger self. And then I'm oh. going to exp expand on this. And this is the second time that I ever do this uh, on this show. And that is... If you had the opportunity to go even even earlier than that in your life yet, maybe to have a a chat, you know, with that yet that was in a refugee camp, what would you tell that younger yet? Um, you know, same thing I know today is that um, you get to make your own life. Nobody tells you what to do. Just do what you want. At the end of the day, each of us can make our own life. The only thing that holds us back is ourselves. I love it. Very profound, Iyad. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn is perfect. Um, I do most of my email on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Iyad, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.